welcome to this week's edition of An Organic Conversation, a show about food, ecology, stories from the land, recipes, relationship, interconnectedness, sustainability, and life itself. It's sauerkraut time. I'm so excited about today's topic. It's such a stereotype, but as with most stereotypes, there's a lot of truth behind them. Yes, I'm German, and yes, I grew up on sauerkraut. We had a wonderful show with Sander Katz on fermentation a few months back, and it was so well received that we wanted to do a follow-up show that would allow anyone to make kraut at home. So today is the day. Culture shift, making fermented foods at home, is our topic in this hour, and we promise you that by the end of the show, you're eager and ready to make some kraut for yourself. I'm Helge Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. That's quite the promise. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Me right? too. Right? You know, Me too. You get him talking about that native home homeland oh, food, totally. and it, it's a whole different guy. <laughs> it's a whole different guy. I can't wait. I can't wait to go to Hamburg someday and just eat with Helga. Yes. Oh yeah, so fun. You've heard on the show that fall is my favorite season, and we've all waxed poetic a little bit about it. But the other day, I saw something, and it occurred differently for me. It was uh, migrating birds. I saw the geese going across the sky in that V where they each take the lead and everything. But I've never really thought about it. I've watched it in wonder, but I've never really thought about the migration of the birds. And, you know, I've always wondered where are they going, you know, and where are we going? Where am I going, um, actually? And this amazing process of migrating from one place to another. I looked up this article on, on Audubon.com, and 4,000 species of bird are regular migrants, which is about 40% of the total uh, world bird population. And there are birds that travel 9,000 miles each way between the Arctic and Africa, and that very bird only weighs less than an ounce, and yet it travels these huge distances. There's another bird that actually can regularly reach altitudes of up to five and a half miles above sea level as it flies over the Himalayas into India. I mean, this whole migration process, can you imagine the desire so great that you are going to fly five, five and a half miles high? I mean, that's where you're hitting planes, right? I mean, if you're flying that high. And I just, I don't know, the, the process to me is fascinating, this, this whole thing of migration. Fascinating to me as well. I did not know that. <laughs> Well, I was thinking about just how meditative it is to watch birds fly across the sky. If you just take some time to look up and see them moving, you just kind of feel like you're journeying with them. Or maybe it's because it feels, maybe because there's a, a metaphor or a feeling of wanting to fly yourself. Or I don't know. It's just, it, it calls my attention to the symbolism I don't know. Now I'm, but now I'm on a different thought train because I wasn't thinking about, first of all, this bird that weighs an ounce. I mean, a gust of wind and he's going to be thrown miles off course, I would imagine, but inherently knows to correct for that. And then these birds that fly as high as planes. I just, that's, that's outside of my scope of understanding until this moment. A different perspective. Yeah. And it's not just birds, right? I mean, there are lots of species that migrate, butterflies and sea life and whales, of course, down people. up and down the coast. Mm -hmm. People um, up and down the coast of California to the Baja to give birth, all the whale populations. So it's worth doing a show on. The amazing thing about the migration of birds is that most of that occurs at night, actually. The fraction you see wow. in the daylight. Yeah, for several reasons, actually, when, when you talked about that, Mark, and when we knew we would open the show with that. For lots of reasons, I, I kind 
of felt it was safer and that maybe the stars navigating at night had something to do with it. Both it's true. It's also cooler at night, so they use less energy wow. than when it's hot. Yeah. Um, it's calmer. Usually night weather is calmer. Uh, wind-wise, also traffic and, and, and other occurrences don't happen as much at night. And then it's also because of the opposite. It's easier to eat during the day. It's easier to find food during the day. So that leaves the night to migrate. Hmm. So interesting. But the vast majority of all migrating species that could migrate between day and night, not, not like whales, but birds, uh, happen at night. And I, I remember, you know, we have those handful of memorable moments in our lives that were life-changing even though maybe at that moment we didn't know it and I was parking in Hamburg and just like San Francisco it's part of the in this case European flyway from Scandinavia all the way to Spain and and Italy and Greece and Turkey so all the birds from Scandinavia which is uh, Sweden Norway and Finland and Denmark that entire area of nature where birds love to hang out during the summer months, they all migrate over Hamburg twice a year in spring and in fall. And I remember a fall day or night when I, at 10 o'clock at night, I parked my car and I locked up the door and I heard that geese sound and it was a completely dark night and I looked up and I couldn't see them. But literally for an hour and a half, I was leaning against my car, looking up and hearing the constant sound of geese flying over me. And that must have been maybe 10,000 or 100,000. I have no idea. And apparently it happens only for three or four nights in fall and three or four nights. really. But within a week, basically, the majority of geese flies over Hamburg. And just that picture that we can't see, but I could hear them. And for an hour and a half, tens of thousands of geese. It must have been a black sky just because of that. Beautiful, incredible. And, and you know what I'm getting from you is, is, is it reminds me now of when you have someone read to you and you close your eyes mm. and you get to actually create the story. The geese were creating a story for you as you stood outside your car in Hamburg. Beautiful. Thanks for bringing that up. It is bird migration time. Let's hope there's enough places to rest and to find food and foul fields because this is the time when 40% of the world bird population alone, in addition to butterflies and everything else that migrates, is on their way to warmer fields, to warmer areas. Good luck, you guys. You're listening to An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Helbert. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Our topic in this hour is a shift. It's a culture shift, making fermented foods at home. It's about kimchi and sauerkraut and everything in between. Before we dive into that topic, though, as always, we're looking at the world of health and beauty no one else but Sita Rani Palomar, a.k.a. Chef Sita, and her holistic bite. Mm, thank you. And this week I want to do a little bit of a throwback, something to a comfort food. It's maybe an unusual one. It's ramen noodles. <laughs> we should what? see Mark's face right now. <laughs> ramen noodles. You know, ramen, at least at least in America, I think, became really popular in the late 80s and early 90s. At least that's my recollection. I remember the very first time I had ramen. It was a mushroom ramen because I was raised vegetarian. And, um, you know, you see it as uh, canned foods back then. It was There was canned ramen and... A lot of us are familiar with the packaged ramen. And my best friend, Rebecca, loves ramen noodle soup, even to this 
day, particularly when she's <laughs> under the weather. It's like what like the things she craves are box macaroni and cheese and packaged ramen. And I love that because it's simple comfort food that you can make for yourself when you're feeling ill because it doesn't take a lot of time. And we also, you know, have a, a culture where a lot of college students eat ramen because it's so quick to prepare, but also because it's so cheap. And I want to talk a little bit about the fact that because it's so inexpensive, at least these package kinds you get are also really void of nutrients. I mean, there was kind of a, a thing about college students getting scurvy again because they eat so much ramen, they're not getting enough vitamin C. So, But ramen, at least for me and for other people that I know, is a comfort food. So I have since been making a lot of ramen, but I'm doing it a different way. And I want to share how to boost this comfort food so you can continue to enjoy it. So here's how I begin. I saute some carrots and onion and shiitake mushrooms and garlic in sesame oil. You don't really need a lot of quantity. If I'm making it for myself, half a carrot and two shiitake mushrooms that's all I need. It really does kind of give the right density for a noodle soup. And then I season the, the vegetables that are being sauteed in sesame oil with a little bit of tamari or a naturally fermented soy sauce. Then I add the vegetable broth and then simmer it until, oh, get it going until it's simmering. And that's when I can add the noodles. And then the noodles only take about four minutes to cook. And whether you're using traditional ramen or you're using an udon noodle, you could do a different kind of noodle bowl. But you're starting with whole ingredients. You're starting with vegetables, you're using vegetable stock, you're adding some organic noodles. And then when it's done, you can season it with an acid to get a little bit of balance to the salty flavor that you're getting and the nuttiness from the from the sesame oil, something like some fresh lemon or lime juice. I use white wine sometimes, whatever wine I didn't finish that's sitting in the refrigerator makes a really great complement in the broth or some vinegar. And that then I, f- I finish off with some cubes of ginger juice. I think I've mentioned on the show before that I like to buy a lot of ginger, juice it, and then freeze it in ice cube trays so that it's really simple to add to any dish. So I'll grab a cube of ginger and add that. It melts in, cools the soup down a little bit. And then I have this incredibly nutrient-dense noodle bowl with carrots and onion and garlic and shiitake and vegetable broth and ginger juice and then some sliced green onions at the end for a little bit of freshness. And then if you want to make it spicy, you add some sriracha. This is really simple. It almost takes as long to prepare as it did for me to explain it. (laughs) (laughs) You can do this and recreate that same delicious flavor. I mean, it really takes, it's less than 15 minutes on any given evening. So enjoy those comfort foods. Find a way to boost them with nutritional value so you can take the things you loved as a child and make them a little bit more adult. And that's this week's Holistic Bite. Thank you, Sita. That's Chef Sita, Sita Onipalomar, with the weekly tip from the world of health and beauty, inner and outer ramen noodle soup. Mark. <laughs> There's something that just two things occurred to me is my nephew in college grew grew up on, was growing up on ramen, right? And I always thought, why would you choose that? And then I realized the reasons. But what you're talking about is actually creating a nutritious meal while still having that comfort and that ease, which many people are looking for. And so I, I love this, and I'm actually going to try it because mm. I've never been a ramen fan because it was always like, why would I eat this? I might as well just eat the box, right? <laughs> and so now, I get, now I'm getting a whole different perspective mm. on it. And I just thought of something. I thought, in Germany, I could be wrong, but they don't have ramen. <laughs> I would be willing to bet that in Germany, they do not have ramen. Sadly so, I don't really know what you guys are talking about. <laughs> 
I can say that oh I know what goodness. ramen is. I know uh, you mentioned another udon noodle. Udon of course, noodles, I know yeah. what a noodle bowl is and uh, have had udon noodles. But ramen, no, never. I no. Oh my goodness! <laughs> it well, it went by me somehow. It, <laughs> I never even heard the name. I mean, it is ramen noodles. I believe okay. classically a very <laughs> nutrient dense dish when prepared. By a chef. There are, I mean, there are people who are like, who is the best ramen in the city? And you go to these ramen houses, but that's very really? different what? than the package ramen. Oh, yeah. Oh, I would love to go to Yeah, ramen actually. House. So, and, and since I mentioned Rebecca, who ramen? loves the, ramen the package ramen, I think it is the noodle specifically, oh, we but don't I'm, know. I'm not okay. totally okay. positive. So Jason, how would but I know? Rebecca and her husband, Jason, are always like on the hunt for who has the best ramen. <laughs> I would love to go to a ramen house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, let's hunt for the best ramen. You're listening to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helber. <laughs> Laughing is Mark Uh, Mulcahy. Mulcahy. (laughs) And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Our topic today is not ramen, but sauerkraut. We are staying kind of, is ramen Asian? It is. Between Asia and Germany, we kind of, or Europe, we we are kind of staying with the theme between kimchi and sauerkraut with a wonderful guest today, Karen Diggs. She is a certified nutrition consultant, and she will tell us not just about how to make it, but also why it's so incredibly good for us and how easy it is actually to integrate it into your diet today. That and more when we come back right after the break. Stay tuned. Fry Vineyards is America's first organic winery, family owned and operated since 1980. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Fry organic and biodynamic wines include delicious Cabernet Sauvignon, Zinfandel, Syrah, Chardonnay, and Sauvignon Blanc. Fry Vineyards Mendocino County award-winning wines without added sulfites. Available at grocery stores and online at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com. Spicely Organics offers more than 200 different organic spices and dried herbs to choose from. Classics like oregano and cumin, exotics like aji amarillo, and blends like tikka masala. Spicely helps nourish your body while embracing sustainable, eco-friendly, and ethical practices always. Take wellness into your own hands and creativity into your own kitchen. Spicely Organics, teas, spices, and dried herbs at your natural food store and online at Spicely.com. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helber. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Our topic today is culture shift, making fermented foods at home. And again, we promise that at the end of this hour, you will be eager and ready to make some kraut for yourself. We are joined today by Karen Dix, certified nutrition consultant and therapeutic chef. Her website is kraut-source.com, which kind of gives you a hint already, kraut-source.com, of what her focus is, combining nutrition, healthy nutrition, with wonderful tasting food. Karen, are you with us? Yes, I am. <laughs> Welcome to the show. It's so great to have you. Thank you so much. And um, thank you so much for inviting me. Um, it's a pleasure to be on. It's great. And I'm so happy to have you here. We've done a couple shows on fermentation, but I really was excited when you started talking about your work. And so, you know, everywhere I go, I travel all over the country. I'm in airports. I pick up magazines and everything. It seems like everywhere I go now, people are talking about fermented food. And two years ago, that wasn't true. I mean, I work in natural food stores all over the country, all over North America. And now it just seems like everybody, every juice bar, every store has, you know, there's these raw sections, these fermented sections. There's, it's like exploding. And there's just this excitement for people, you know, about 
fermented foods. And so, you know, what's occurred right now in the culture that has made fermentation so popular? You know, thank you so much for noticing that. And it's almost as if symbiotically everything is converging together to force us to take notice of cultures that are proliferating in our in our society and definitely in the food world. I feel that is a um, revival of a tradition that was pushed sort of to the background for for many decades. Um, I don't want to do like a whole food history of it, but I think with the onslaught of industrial culture, you know, the industrialized age, and trying to cookie stamp everything into a package, industrial food, industrialized farming. So for many decades, we've been sort of living under that yoke. You know, as you know, at an organic conversation, things that are alive and vibrant cannot be kept down. So I think it's basically time has come for live culture foods to make a revival. But it's not a food movement that's a fad. It's really just something that was there all along. And now we are rekindling the necessity to really enjoy fermented foods or lacto-fermented foods, because inherently we, we need that connection with foods that have life cultures. In terms of health, as a nutritionist, you know, the biggest buzzword in microbiology right now is to look at our gut ecology or the gut terrain. And um, the buzzword is the microbiota or microbiome that has been made very popular with the help of Michael Pollan. So everyone who's into health and nutrition and lacto-fermented foods are beginning to realize the importance of having a good gut ecology. And a big part of that is being driven by an awareness of fermented foods. Well, you know, Karen, listening to you, that now, you know, my my health person sitting here goes, well, of course, yes, I want that. I want to have more of that. And yes, and those are the exact things that I've been reading. And you're right spot on. Perfect answer. But my question now is, what changed about our taste buds? Because Americans that I can remember growing up, unlike Helga growing up with sauerkraut, you know, we're, we're not a big fermented food society. I mean, maybe pickles, right? Maybe occasionally sauerkraut at a baseball game or something like that. Where where did that kind of shift happen that, that our taste buds have kind of evolved to where we're ready to also embrace the health benefits of this? <laughs> Right. Well, you know, the good thing is everyone has taste buds to begin with. (laughs) Most of us. I think that, (laughs) fortunately, you know, like you don't have to add more taste buds to your already existing taste buds. (laughs) So I think what's really exciting is that so long as you have have taste buds, whether you have many or not so many, because there there are people who are known as super tasters, but granted that you have, you know, the basic taste profiles on your, on your receptor sites, part of that is actually really recognizing that fermented foods serve us, you know, on a taste level, but also, I think, on a deeper level, energetically, it really resonates with how we are as, you know, natural beings, because the, the um, incredible array of lactobacilli bacteria that's really good for us, all of the things that are floating around that we actually can't see, it lives in harmony with us. And I think, in a way, it's us actually now realizing that we need to enjoy these flavors. Some of them can be quite challenging to the uninitiated. But I think once you're 
body recognizes that awareness, it's like coming home. You know, um, for someone who may have been used to eating, you know, a lot of processed foods, when they clean up their diet a little bit and return to whole foods, even if you don't look at fermented foods, but for a person who sits down to look at a store-bought conventional tomato versus one, an heirloom tomato that has been grown with care on an organic land, the difference between those two is like night and day. So I think in a more advanced level now, Americans, their taste buds are reawakening to what is really authentic and true and part of our heritage. And knowing how much the brain influences our behavior, of course, once a trend towards healthier food options, you know, once blue-green algae or whatever enters your diet or more kale, you get used to the taste and the flavor. You, once you, your brain tells you this is really healthy and you had your first wheatgrass shot, whatever it may be, the second one will be less intimidating or the second salad yes. with kale or this, you know, the right. second portion of sauerkraut. Yeah. So the, the, the brain right. and the knowledge how healthy it is, I do believe and have experienced myself, lets us overcome yes. the, that initial hurdle. But even though we have almost moved on, I do want to compliment you on bringing in the societal shift to more culture. I, I think there's a, the fourth leg of the four-pronged effort of sustainability, social, environmental, economic, and cultural, the the need for culture, the, the heirlooms, the yes. natives, indigenous wisdom, all that which has almost gotten lost or lost in some areas is now reevaluated and brought back. So um, it's interesting that the culture or the society that is shifting towards culture as a value is also shifting towards culture in food and in fermented foods. Beautiful right. um, arch yeah. that, you, that you created there. I wanted to um, pick up on one of the things that you mentioned, Karen, which is this desire for the lactobacilli that's kind of everywhere, right? We're starting to be drawn to it because it's in the air and we're, we're developing a deeper relationship with it. I think the fact that yogurt has become such a popular food, actually, over the last decade or a little bit more than that. I think that was maybe somewhat of an introduction into the sour foods and the lactobacilli. And now the the cultured vegetables, the fermented vegetables, which also possess lactobacilli, are becoming a little bit easier. They were just, we're getting there because we were already partly there with the lactobacillus and yogurt. And you made a very important distinction, Karen, when we were talking about this. You said not, not just fermented foods, but lacto-fermented foods. Can you tell us what this means? What is the distinction between the two and why is it important to differentiate? Sure. Thank you, Sita. So, yeah, there's, you know, there are actually many confusing terms when we look at lacto-fermented foods or fermented foods or live culture foods. And sometimes all of those terms are just kind of intermingled and it's hard to differentiate between them. The term lacto-fermentation refers to a process in which we give the right environment, the proper pH, so that lactobacilli bacteria can proliferate during the per fermentation. And so you're absolutely right. You know, yogurt is probably one of the most well-known foods that carry the lactobacilli strains, and perhaps one of the most ancient as well, and really enjoyed across cultures around the world. Basically, when it comes to food, two ways, either through dairy products or through vegetables. With vegetables, we need to take it um, to the fermentation process. So basically, actually, any fruit or vegetable contains the lactobacilli potential. And when we ferment it using a combination of water and salt and thyme, 
then the potential is there. So with organic fruits and vegetables, when we do the fermentation, we give it the right environment for the lactobacilli strains to proliferate. Some people may not be aware of it, but there are actually many, many different strains. And these good bacteria will come into play during different times of the fermentation. And so in terms of food, these are the two sources that we know through dairy sources and through vegetables. And both of these are very important for our health, which is really great. I mean, there's another term, lactic acid, which some people get a little confused because when you exercise, lactic acid also occurs in the body, you know, the muscles. That's when we get cramping and so forth. But what's really interesting, though, is that lactic acid, whether it is tied in with food or in terms of exercise, it is a means of generating energy. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and there's something else I wanted to pick up on this topic. And you and I have talked about this before together personally. And that's the difference between vinegar pickles and lacto-fermented mm-hmm. pickles. Because the next question that we want to go into is about the hesitation that many people have in making their own pickles and krauts at home. And people that I know that started making their own pickles and krauts were doing quick pickles with vinegar. But there is a really important difference between vinegar pickles and traditionally fermented pickles. Can you tell us what that is? Yes, and I'm so glad you brought that up because people really confuse that term pickling or pickle or preserves. So in terms of uh, just the word pickled something, um, I think a lot of people, they do associate it with a, um, using a vinegar because with the vinegar, the pH is at a certain state where it will just preserve the vegetables that you want. This in and of itself is fine because it is a traditional way of preserving the harvest. You know, So if you are growing a lot of, let's say, cucumbers or squashes or whatever in your garden and there's a surplus, the easiest way is to preserve it through pickling, which is one process that many people are more familiar with. The other process of preserving would be lacto-fermentation. So the difference between cucumbers that are being pickled using vinegar and one that is just using a brine, which is a salt and water solution, and thyme, is that the one that is pickled with vinegar, uh, depending on the type of vinegar and the pH, most likely will not have any of the lactobacilli strains in it because of the pH of the vinegar. is not compatible with their, with their growth and flourishing. Whereas if you took your summer cucumbers and you placed it in a brine solution with herbs and spices and ferment it properly in the proper uh, manner and give it time, then the lactobacilli strains will actually proliferate. And so you have a product that has live cultures providing you with um, probiotics. So that's the main difference between the two. And Karen, we do want you to walk us through that. How is it made? What's happening and why is it so good for us? Between kimchi and sauerkraut, we are speaking with Karen Diggs, who is certified nutrition consultant and therapeutic chef and the founder of CrowdSource. More information can be found on crowd-source.com. She's joining us today from San Francisco, California, in this hour of Culture Shift, Making Fermented Foods at Home. Karen, we'll take a quick break, but stay with us. We'll be right back with more. 
Are you a chef, have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, walk right in to Earl's Organic Produce. Anyone can buy directly from us at wholesale prices. You don't have to be a natural food store to enjoy the freshest and most delicious organic produce. We are located on the San Francisco Produce Market at 2101 Gerald Avenue. We look forward to seeing you. Walk-in hours are Monday through Friday throughout the night from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. Minimum purchase is one box or flat, cash or checks only. For more information, visit earlsorganic.com. Are you interested in making healthy food your profession? Bowman College is a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Their professional training programs prepare individuals for successful careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Study at one of four locations in California and Colorado or learn from home in a self-paced mentor distance learning program. Find out more about their classes on holistic nutrition and culinary arts at bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. And we are back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. We are talking kraut today. <laughs> sauerkraut. From kimchi to sauerkraut, we are covering lacto-fermentation versus pickling in vinegar with no one else but Karen Dix, an authority throughout the country, as she combines fermentation and holistic nutrition with yummy food. Karen Dix is a certified nutrition consultant and therapeutic chef out of San Francisco and also the founder of CrowdSource, crowd-source.com, offering an incredibly easy way to make ferments of vegetables and more at home. Karen, can you talk us through the easy steps? We promised listeners that at the end of the show, they will not just be eager to make it, but actually able to make it. So I can only imagine the emails we're getting if we don't deliver on that one. How is it made? What is the, the, the most simple process of having a lacto-fermented food at home? You know, I, I know it is something that is intimidating for many but I think it is intimidating simply because it's so new to our American culture, as you say. But, you know, definitely the, the pilgrims who came on the boat and the early settlers to America, they knew about lacto-fermented vegetables and pickling and preservation of foods and all of that good stuff. So again, it's just reawakening that knowledge that we inherently know. So in terms of making lacto-fermented vegetables, there are a few, a few basic steps are which are really just very easy if you can just like keep it in mind. One is that you need to make a brine, which is simply salt and water. For the ideal conditions, you want to have water that is freed from chlorine, chloramine, and fluoride. So good natural spring water or filtered water, plus a high-quality salt. In my fermentations, I use exclusively Celtic sea salt, but you can definitely use other good-quality mineralized salts just don't use table salt because, you know, as I'm sure the three of you know and many of your listeners are aware of, table salt is just not a healthy uh, seasoning to use. Then you have your vegetables. You know, ideally it would be organic, something from your garden, something from the farmer's market. You can take cabbage, cucumbers. I've been quite experimental with my fermentation. I've, I've even used purslane and I've done salsas. So anyway, whatever ingredient you're using, that ingredient needs to go into a crock or a mason jar if you are doing a smaller batch. You pack that into the, the vessel and then you fill it with brine. And 
the vegetables need to stay submerged within the brine. So ideally, you would have a weight that pushes down the vegetables. The brine will be above the surface of the vegetables by at least an inch or two. And then when it is in this environment, the water above the vegetables will create an anaerobic seal so that bacteria doesn't get in. And then the lactobacilli strains are able to proliferate in that environment. There are many, many different kinds of devices for doing that. The Chinese have their crocs. The Germans certainly have many different ways of doing it. I think in all different countries, there are devices that people have used. You know, when I started fermenting, I basically just used an open crock. And when I, you know, cut all of my vegetables up, I would pack it into this crock. And then I would find a plate where the circumference is just enough to put into the the crock. And then I would try and weigh the whole thing down with uh, stones or um, another jar. And then cover the whole thing with a cloth to keep, you know, dust from going in or insects from going in. So it can be as basic as that. If you want to go one step beyond it, there are other devices that you can use. But the important principles to keep in mind is it has to stay submerged. You need to have something covering your fermentation so that it doesn't get um, contaminated. And an ideal temperature is between around 72 to 75 degrees. But having said that, the fermentation process is very flexible. So it can actually withstand a higher temperature or a cooler temperature. And you can play around and adjust that. If you happen to live in a climate where the ambient temperature in your kitchen is, you know, warmer, let's say 80 or 82, 83, you can add more salt so that the fermentation process goes a little more slowly. Because the slower it goes, the more flavors it will develop. If you're living in a very cold climate, let's say it's below 70 degrees Fahrenheit in your kitchen, then use less salt, the fermentation process will happen quicker, and then you can enjoy your fermentation sooner. So these are sort of the basic things that you need to follow. Beyond that, though, I have to say, with fermentation, it is not a cookie-cutter process. For those of you who may have eight plus type personalities and you want everything to turn out perfect and just the way you want it. (laughs) Fermentation is going to give you a great life lesson to know that every batch will be different and you just have to at some point give in to the organic process and enjoy what what comes out. Well, and just quickly, because you're the one who taught me the proper ratio for making this brine. Can you let our listeners know, I know you said a little more salt for hotter temperatures, a little less salt for cooler Mm -hmm. temperatures, but what is the basic ratio of salt to water to make your vegetable brine? I usually use one teaspoon to one cup of water, but then you can adjust that up and down. Also, with making traditional sauerkraut, there is a, a ratio that I can give people. For every one and a half pounds of cabbage cut weight, you can use about one tablespoon of sea salt. Okay, so the brine ratio is about one teaspoon of sea salt to one cup of water. If you're doing Mm -hmm. sauerkraut, though, you can do one and a half pounds cut weight cabbage with one Mm -hmm. tablespoon of salt. Tablespoon salt, yeah. Uh, I will repeat all this. You cut it in, what, fairly small strips or pieces? How small do you cut the vegetables? Right, in terms of making, um, you know, sauerkraut from cabbage, the finer that you can cut it, the better. But everyone's taste uh, palate is a little bit different. I, because I'm, you know, I'm a chef and I really like to use my knife, I do it all by hand. But, you know, if you're, you are a busy mom and you're wanting to incorporate making sauerkraut into your, your family's diet, you can put it through um, a food processor and shred it really, really quickly or use a shredder. 
So it really doesn't matter how you do it. It is true that the finer you do it, the more of the inherent liquid would be released when you add the salt, and the fermentation will actually go a little quicker. Because you increase the surface, right? The more you cut it, every cut is a surface. You're doubling Um, the surface. More contact. More contact with the salt. You cut whatever vegetable you have in your backyard or you got from the Mm -hmm. farmer's market in in small Mm -hmm. strips. It doesn't really matter how small, but small. Give it some surface. You Mm -hmm. shove it all in, let's say, a mason jar. You leave about an inch on top. You fill it with a brine of just water and a teaspoon per cup of water of salt, ideally Mm -hmm. sea salt or like a high-quality salt, not something that is highly processed. And you put pressure on top. Um, so right. that it stays submerged, and that's it. And then you cover it so the cat doesn't get to it, and three <laughs> days later you have fermented foods. Is that really it? Well, okay, so the three days really depends on the um, the ambient temperature, the type of vegetables that you are fermenting. Sure. So there there are variations. As far as the science behind whether to ferment it for a number of days, Or if you read some fermentation books, for instance, you know, the king of fermentation, Sandor Katz, he recommends that people leave their fermentation for weeks, if not months. And for some people, that's okay. For other people, that's a long time to wait for fermented products. So when you are making it in a mason jar, let's say a uh, a standard quart-sized mason jar or uh, something that's a little bit bigger, two-quart, you can actually enjoy it sooner. As far as three days, it's a little bit short for sauerkraut. I like to leave my sauerkraut for at least maybe 10 to 2 weeks. Pickles do well between 7 to 10 days. Kimchi can do well in a shorter time, between 3 to 5. But you can definitely let it sit for 10 or 12 days, up to a week or a month. So it really depends on the depth of flavor that you like. Now, in terms of health, you need to let it sit for at least three to four days for the first round of lactobacilli strains to start to come into play. But there's nothing you need to add from the outside. They will just naturally occur. They will just naturally happen, right, because as the fermentation process happens and as the pH changes, the lactobacilli strains will actually take over the fermentation, and when it's done properly, it will kill off the other bacteria that are not helpful in your fermentation. And then they will start to thrive. Yeah, and we had Sander Katz on the show a few months back, and he talked about this gigantic lactobacilli restriction or fermentation stopping device, a.k.a. the refrigerator. So when you feel, <laughs> when you taste your yeah. ferment and you like it, right. you can just put it, you don't need to strain it or anything. You just take the whole jar, put it in the refrigerator, and there mm-hmm. it stays fresh for you know, several weeks, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, and again, you know, it, it depends on how well it has been fermented outside, and once you like the flavor and, you know, everything about it is really yummy, then just put it into the refrigerator. Um, there is one important thing to note. For some fermentations, it is helpful to keep enough brine so that even in the refrigerator, without a weight on top, at least the level of the vegetables are staying level with the amount of the brine. Gotcha. It'll help it stay in the refrigerator for longer. Perfect. Sure. Keep it water sealed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, we, before the show, we, we spent a couple hours coming up with the most creative ideas of how to integrate this. I know Sita made a kind of a, a soup, just like a, a noodle soup, where she added mm-hmm. some actually of your sauerkraut to it, and it turned instantly into a more miso soup 
type. I, yeah. I have yeah. known to put sauerkraut on my bread, which, of course, with cheese, uh, makes an oh, amazing, that way. exactly, non-meat Reuben. That yeah. You can put it into salads to spice up your salads. What other uses, if people are interested in making this now and really making it part of their daily diet as a, as a fun addition instead of maybe the marmalade that we are used to, but just something healthy and yeah. easy to add, what do, you, what do you use your sauerkrauts for? Okay, well, you know, just before the call, I, I have um, a meeting to, tonight uh, that I'm going to, and, you know, we always bring something. So I, I made a really beautiful uh, fermentation with purple um, cauliflower, and I had this beautiful purple brine that, you know, came up as a result. So I made some deviled eggs, and when I made the um, egg yolk, I poured some of the brine into it. Wow. So I have this beautiful egg yolk flavor that has the brine in it. You know, I piped it on top of the eggs, and then I am topping it up with um, a little bit of kimchi. No, super nice. So yeah. Devil eggs Where's the event? Mark, <laughs> yeah, right. Mark was actually saying... Is it a saying, private event? Yeah. Are there tickets? <laughs> <laughs> Even just your morning eggs with some sauerkraut, it just adds that, you know, acid to it. It's just really wonderful. And of yeah, course, the Yeah, actually, I have that almost every morning, um, you know, different types of sauerkraut. The other thing, and I posted something to my, my Facebook page, and it was very popular, making martinis. Oh, yeah, with, instead of olive juice. With the kraut juice. And then, you know, instead of an olive, then you... You, you spear a little, you know, fermented um, onion or wow. a little sprig of cauliflower yeah, or a I little bit of carrot that. into your martini. It's Parquet. just like beautiful. Well, beautiful. and I, I know people who also like to use the brine from their, their ferments in their vinaigrettes instead of vinegar. Sure. Yes. It's like all yeah, yeah, absolutely. the healthiest yeah, acid and you it's can just, add. It's such a quick way of doing that. I feel we delivered. Thank you, <laughs> Yay, Karen. Job, thank you Karen. so much. Our goal was to let people get away with uh, knowing how to make it. And I feel now I know how to make it. And that's usually the that's lowest standard. Yeah, of, that's yeah. a huge deal. Everyone else got it <laughs> already last week. But okay. with us today, Karen Dix, certified nutrition consultant and therapeutic chef, who has invented actually an amazing way of making sauerkrauts in a, in a fairly small container in, in the a, court in, mason jar or in, any in mason, mason jar, mason jar really. exactly with the lid already pushing down check it out I loved it we have used it and it's working really really well that's called crowdsource crowd-source.com can people order ingredients or recipes or that mason jar with the push down spring loaded lid um, off your side Karen okay well thank you for asking yeah you know um, we ran a Kickstarter campaign to raise the funds to manufacture it and we uh, today actually before the call was our last day of the campaign and we have been successfully funded so that's really really good we are now going to go into production so the crowdsource devices won't be ready until November okay great. at which time we would fulfill the orders from our backers at the Kickstarter campaign and then as soon as that's done it will be available online at our website and also through I guess maybe several stores in the Bay Area initially first and then we'll we'll look into wider distribution next year. Yeah, national show people might order online again that's crowd-source.com and that's no one less but Karen Dix, certified nutrition consultant, crowd queen, 
and therapeutic <laughs> chef and the founder of CrowdSource, who was joining us today from San Francisco, California. Thank you, Karen. May the American culture not be pickled, but be lacto-fermented. Great to, great <laughs> to have that. you Thank on the you hour. So much, Thank Olga. you so much, Olga. And Sita and Mark. Thank, <laughs> Thank you, Karen. Karen. Bye-bye Take now. Care. Wonderful. Okay. Bye. Bye. All right. Lacto-fermented. Yes, that was amazing. And I actually really feel I can do it now. It's complete. It's so Simplified. easy. It's so easy. Mm-hmm. Way easier than I've ever understood. So I would love to see you do that. And which vegetables can we use, Mark? That's what's coming up next. You're listening to An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Helder. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. What's in season from the produce dock? That in just a minute. Stay tuned. Produce is ever-changing. Seasons coming and going. At Earl's Organic, we have been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. Since 1988, Earl's Organic Produce has been establishing strong relationships with growers and developing a deep understanding of the seasons, so you can offer the most delicious organic produce to your customers, staff, and clients year-round. For organic produce, visit Earl's Organic Produce at earlsorganic.com. That's earlsorganic.com. Spicely Organics' emphasis has long been on the natural health benefits of organic spices. And now, Spicely is excited to share more health benefits with the introduction of their hand-blended organic teas. Choose from black, green, white, mate, oolong, pu'er, and herbals blended with their signature spices like vanilla rooibos, sweet turmeric, and honey lavender. Spicely Organics, teas, spices, and dried herbs at your natural food store and online at Spicely.com. And we are back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helbert. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Culture, culture, culture shift, making fermented foods at home. Our focus in this hour here on an organic conversation that was Karen Dix, again, certified nutrition consultant and therapeutic chef, combining beauty and wonder and culture and fermentation and health and nutrition and flavor all in one. She's the founder of CrowdSource crowd-source.com. Check it out. Just finished a successful Kickstarter campaign to offer a mason jar with a spring-loaded lid that pushes the crowd down for you in very edible portions. (laughs) It is edible (laughs) portions. Karen is also an instructor at Bowman College. Ah, see, we always circle back around health, and then there's Bowman College, one of the leading culinary institutes and holistic nutrition schools in the country, bowmancollege.org. Check it out if you want to take on the culinary world or health Uh, food as nutrition, food as health, health through nutrition for yourself or as a profession. Making fermented foods at home, our focus in this hour, and we're now diving into the ingredients for that. We talked about the processes and a little bit about the ingredients that can be used, but of course we want the full rundown of what's happening on the produce dock right now. What's in season, Mark? (laughs) 
You know, I think the only reason we do what's in season is so that you can say yeehaw. <laughs> I think that really is the only reason that you I get added the horse today. To, and, and, and the gunshot. Yeah, and the gunshot. <laughs> the showdown. I mean, heck, this is going to be gun smoke before we know it. Now, you yeah. have props. Props. Yeah, he's going to be in a cowboy hat. Can you imagine that? They had oh, a fermented, fermented food in the Wild West. They did. They did have fermented food. But yes, today, great show, Earl. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking about something that we see in the produce department year-round, actually. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a department where I ever go that this isn't in the produce department. But now, it's a little different because now we're starting the California season on kiwis. And so, for yeah. all of you who don't know Earl, we have Earl Herrick, the voice of the San Francisco produce market from Earl's Organic in San Francisco, coming to join us to talk about the California kiwi season. Yay! You're right, Mark. It's, it's year-round, and California season starts around yeah, September, October, November. It really varies, but not too much within that area of time. October is really a... You're, you're starting to see them right now. All-year availability amounts to... Well, they they were started in New Zealand, and from there, uh, California got into it in the late 60s and 70s. And so production is mostly looked at New Zealand is May through October. And just like many other fruits, they, they ripen all summer, harvest in the fall. And then you have uh, California kiwi pretty much October through April. So it's a year-round. There's also production out of Italy, a pretty good production out of Italy and Japan. So it can be found year-round all over the globe. And it grows in areas that are kind of like... Um, stone fruit areas, uh, warm days, really hot days, and it's got to get cold enough, what we call it chill hours, so it allows the vines, because this is a vine, to sleep and rest, to invigorate, to put out good, wonderful fruit the next season. Yeah, it's actually kind of interesting when you go to a kiwi farm, and I bet you see you see them trellised, just like grapes, yeah. right? And just hanging down there, these fuzzy little brown globes just hanging hanging above your head sometimes and the weight of it right i mean we're talking trellises of where the where the globe has what 30 40 50 kiwi on it oh yeah, more they, than that you know, they, they're really kind of arbors and, and yeah, trellises, right, like exactly. they, and they have to be pretty well uh manufactured and and, and to hold up the weight up yeah and and in addition to that kiwi orchards need uh air a windbreak think uh, big trees like uh, poplars, because if it gets a good wind, not only will, will, the, will it scar the fruit, but it also uh, can damage the vines. Mm -hmm. So, because they're, 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 they're a bit different, and they're obviously much bigger than uh, thinking grapes. So, protection is very, very important. Well, and interestingly enough, Earl, so now we're going into California, so that's domestic. Um, what's the kiwi crop looking like this year? Any any updates well, on that? You know, we've had a great great year. the The drought hasn't really affected it much, even though kiwis require a, a sufficient amount of water. Most most orchards are in, on a drip system. Um, most guys are saying, and, and this is what I'm hearing across the board with lots of different um, farmers, is we got to get some rain this this off season we're talking october through may so as of now uh is, is a really good crop uh what you're seeing is the import season finishes a lot of small fruit it's not uncommon for the last of the crops to be small because big fruit is more popular so what's left is a small fruit so you probably 
seeing a bunch of small fruit around, but as California comes on, we'll get back to the real nice big pieces of fruit that we're all used to. And so quality of flavor-wise, domestic crop, as always, and local economies and all that taken into consideration, but it sounds like flavor-wise you would be able to tell a California-grown or a domestic one versus shipped from half around the world? You know, you would think so, but as the season goes on, if they're picked at the right sugar level, they're going to ripen properly. Gotcha. So, but there is a time, though, where it's very, very obvious, and that's when the old season stops and the new season comes on, because the old product is always going to be a little bit sweeter, because almost all fruit is picked a little early to jumpstart the market. Sure. So I always like to put off, even though the California is around right now, I'm going to put off a, a week or two if there's still some import and enjoy that fruit because it is much sweeter. You know, but if you're if you're really a kiwi lover, and there's great reasons to be, it's incredibly high in vitamin C and potassium, and the season, and there's still you got some import and some domestic. I would get a little bit of both. I'm a lover in general, by the way, kiwi or not. But yes, we will do that. Wonderful domestic kiwi are in. Thank you, Earl. Yes, sir. Enjoy those little fuzzy balls. <laughs> okay. Um, so that was this week's yeah. What's in Season. Helga and, and Earl, you guys have a fun time with that Zinfandel tonight. And uh, thank you for being on, Earl. We look forward to talking to you next week. Go out and get some kiwis. Uh, Mark eats his kiwis like apples. Haven't you seen him? No. Really? Yeah, yeah the whole the whole okay. thing. Go to anorganicconversation.com and for check out the video if we can. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see that. Okay. Wow. Things I did not know. Thanks, Mark Huey. That's wonderful. How do you pick a perfect one? You just, you want to have it, you have a little pressure, like with an avocado, just use your thumb and your forefinger or even just cup it in your hand, but just have a little pressure. And you want to make sure it doesn't have a shriveled in. And so uh, and just a nice color. If it starts looking dull, again, like I was mentioning in several shows about different yeah, things. Vibrancy. That dullness means that it's, it's losing nutrients, it's losing moisture, and it's, it's just not going to be as good a product. The fun factor is down. Yeah, the fun <laughs> factor is down at that point in time. And nobody likes an unfun kiwi, really, no, when you no. that. Thank you, Mark. Well, that was this week's delicious <laughs> edition of An Organic Conversation. Thanks for listening. We'll Bye-bye see you now. next week. An Organic Conversation is a proud production of the Organic Media Network. Associate producer, Kristen Ponger. If you missed parts of this show or for any other episode, go to iTunes or anorganicconversation.com. And for more information, health tips, recipes, and your daily dose of inspiration, please follow us on facebook.com forward slash Organic Conversation. We are your hosts, Helga Helberg, Mark Mulcahy, and Sitarani Palomar. And we'll be back right here, same place, same time, next week. See you then. Bye. Bye-bye.